I, I got an idea for our theme slash intro music. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think it should uh, it should maybe be something like this. All right, everybody, it's time for music, mindfulness, and madness. Is anybody listening? Is anybody listening? Yes. So for our listeners, for our listeners out funny. there, that was the intro for D's new single, Anybody, which is a cover of a song by 70s power pop group, The Quick, and it is amazing. It's available oh, on you. Bandcamp right now. I've been listening to it nonstop since it came out. Nice job, D. Yeah, I saw it. Thanks for sharing it too, Anu. Thank you for that. Of course. That was, that was really nice. It's really good. Thanks. Thanks. It was it was a lot of fucking work. And there was there was at least three points where I, I thought about throwing it away and just I couldn't do it. Couldn't I'm do glad it. you didn't, because it's great. It really came down to Jason. It really came down to Jason coming to me like I so I started sharing like just, you know, scratch versions of it basically. I I I basically gave him what I would normally work from at you know in the early stages. And it it was pretty rudimentary. It had a very pitchy scratch vocal that I did with ear AirPods into my iPad. And um, and then he figured out later that the outro was completely fucked up, that that I inverted the, the chord progression on the outro. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point, he basically goes, he, he in, in a roundabout way, you know, speaking in, in you know, Jason and I being friends for 50 some odd years shorthand, he basically said, look, you need to fix this fucking thing or I'm not going to do it. Amen. And I said, okay. Um, and uh, I, I got it to a point where I, I figured it would be, it would be good, a good thing for him to play. He, he basically said, I, I need something to play off of here and you're not giving me enough to play off of. So uh, I gave him something to play off of and he said, okay, this is good. But yeah, there was a there was a point there. There was a couple of points there where I just felt like ah fuck it, because I I had asked him if he could uh, work on some stuff with me in the past and ended up bailing on it for for similar reasons because I there, I had something in the mimeograph stuff I was going to ask him if he could play on and uh, knew that it was kind of that it was in a bit of a janky state the thing that I was going to ask him to play on and then ultimately just decided to throw the track away completely. And I almost did that again. Uh, I'm glad I didn't. Came out good. Yeah, it did. Came out great. Thanks. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. real good. That that mastering work too, boy. Stellar, stainless. Who did that? Who did stainless. That? I think it was. I think it's that. Uh, Stainless. Michael Michael Hatemaker guy from Hatemaker <laughs> Lotus Lotus Hatemakers. How many Hate- how many revisions did you do before it was right? Uh be- between Michael and I, you mean? Yeah. Um, I think I only sent it to him once. I, I didn't have any notes. I was like, this is good. Uh that's, act that's and awesome. actually it was so good. Uh, I have, so I have two other singles that I'm doing. Um, Michael's work on that one was so good that uh, I, I, I sent 
the other two back to him and said, make these sound more like the first one, um, which which he had to do some doctoring to do because the, the mixes that I had didn't have. I think that the mix, that it, uh, the low end didn't quite match up to what I did with anybody, and I just asked him to bump it. And then uh, I, can't, I actually did do something else with the other one. I can't remember what. But yeah, anybody that was just uh, one and done, one and done. You made it easy on me. Thanks. The mixes kind of, you know, say everything, you know, just generally the mixes kind of tell me where to go. I can adjust and, you know, make things fit easier. I mean, that's kind of the job. But since I only had the one song and the different versions of it, I just did what I did. And then... Then you sent me the other stuff, and then it was like, "Oh, okay, this all goes together." But anyway, it's it's a process. Well, yeah, we're very excited. Very excited well, how things are coming along. We can save uh, some further discussion of of this yes. new project for when the full album comes out. Uh, do you do you have an ETA for that uh, yet, D? Tentatively, at the clip I'm I'm moving at, uh, I'm going to say end of October. All right. Well, that's coming right up. You got about six weeks. You got three sprints. Three sprints. I think three sprints and it'll be done. All right. Yeah. I am wrapping up, basically done with one track, and I have three more to do. I've got three more to mix, and and, and then i got to ship them all off to Michael, the rest of it off to Michael. That's fantastic. Well, I think we had talked about today, um, maybe talking a little bit about some uh, shows that we've we've seen recently. I think one of the things that I've observed with a lot of my friends uh, in the pandemic is that uh, everybody has spent a lot more time uh, watching streaming TV because like, what the hell else are you going to do? Um, and uh, one of the things that I saw recently, so... Uh, my wife goes to bed pretty early. She gets up real early, goes to bed early. And when she's heading off to bed at, you know, like nine or nine 30, I am definitely not ready to go to sleep yet. Some of that is what is the, uh, reverse, uh, revenge, the revenge bedtime procrastination. You familiar with this concept? Oh yeah. Like, you know, I'm just trying to claw back a little bit of time for myself in the day, but, uh, I have found myself watching, lots of, of reruns, uh, or shows that I've seen before from days of yore. And some of it I think is the nostalgia and the comfort. And some of it is that, um, there's very few new shows I'm interested in. Um, we did mention, you know, last week that like reservation dogs is the best thing on television by a mile. Um, Mm-hmm. One of the, one of the things I was doing as I was poking around on HBO is I saw that they had uh, all of the episodes of the Gary Shandling show, um, which is from the '90s, uh, and is basically Gary Shandling's comedic masterwork. It's sort of a workplace comedy set at a late night talk show, and he made this at a time when late night talk shows were a big a bigger deal in culture than they are right now. Um, there had been some drama between Jay Leno and David Letterman with Johnny Carson retiring and Conan O'Brien coming on board. And these were, this was back really when those shows still kind of mattered in a way that they don't today um, for better or for worse. 
And uh, he made this brilliant uh, deep show that uses sort of the show business background to kind of comment on human foibles and failings. It's fantastic. And as I was watching it again, I was reminded what a, a talent it was. He didn't just act in it. He was the the mastermind behind it and kind of put things together and really uh, oversaw it in depth. And uh, one of the writers on that show was a guy named Judd Apatow, who uh, went on to have a real big career in comedy. And Judd uh, had interviewed Gary when he was a teen, when Judd was a teenager in high school for his like high school newspaper. And ultimately that interview led to Judd coming out and eventually working for Gary on a bunch of different projects and then them being very good friends. And uh, after uh, Gary died, uh, Judd made this documentary uh, called The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. And HBO had that as well. I saw it in the You Might Also Like section. And I watched it and I was really um, blown away by it. Um, Gary Shandling's or Larry, (laughs) the Larry Sanders show, uh, you know, Gary, Gary, uh, Gary Shandling's stage persona um, is sort of a little bit like an updated Woody Allen, I guess, you know, it's kind of, um, uh, a, a little bit kvetchy and, uh, complainy, but you watch this documentary and you realize that, uh, Gary Shambling was a really, uh, intense and driven guy and someone who was very smart and very interested in some of the same kinds of things that, that we talk about. Um, and I was, I was really moved by it. And so I thought that would be one thing we could talk about today. Yeah. I, you know, I hadn't seen it before. I'd seen a little bit of the Larry Sanders show, but I hadn't seen all of it. And I, Gary Shangley's work is always just masterful, but I never really was like, oh, he's my favorite comic ever until I saw the Judd Apatow. You know, it's like two, two hour sections, part one and part two. And it was extraordinary. And I watched it this week because I hadn't seen it. I actually bought the book. Uh, of his Zen Diaries for Beth a while ago. She had expressed interest in it. And, really? Uh, I didn't even know that those were published. Yeah, yeah. It's it's um, it's um beautiful. It's beautiful. And it's got him on the front. It's the artwork from the TV show, too, where he's he's sitting in front of a set that's on fire. And so every, there's all these flames going on, and he's just like with his hair, like, hey. And it's a brilliant book. I, just, I, I thumbed through it before I like brought it home to her, and... I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. And then the the Apatow, I think the thing that struck me about the documentary, um, the Zen Diaries, you know, was just that, you know, Judd's relationship with him and how totally incredibly uh, um, personal it was, you know, and like everything that everyone shared about him, even though, you know, e- even with his foibles and his failings, um, which I'm sure he was aware of, but also was, you know, falls victim to like we all do. It was he was very human. It was very intimate. And um, even when he was like pushing people away in the way that he did it and his perfectionism and like it was just a really beautiful uh, tribute to this man that that, you know, really let his uh, his humanity show in a way that was, I don't know, I thought it was very compassionate and very loving and uh, what a great tribute. And I hope everyone else feels that way. But it was it was pretty extraordinary. And also, you know, his dedication to Buddhism 
you know, Zen Buddhism specifically uh, was just super fascinating, you know, um, and, and how he incorporated that into his work and the diary work, you know, he's really just like, you know, I got to be my true Gary, you know, how do I be my true Gary? And then you see the flip side of it, which is like his obsession with being like the best at everything, his total attachment to everything. And I'm like, how very human, you know? And I think Judd really captured that, the dichotomy of what it is to be a human being. And especially at that level, what a what an extraordinary experience to be like top of the world, you know, television star, hating himself, trying to be better, you know, than he knows how to be. And there's also his backstory too about his his brother passing away and just all that and how it how it informed everything and his mother and just like woof i related to a lot of it personally um anyway i thought it was an extraordinary uh creation i, I was trying to think of like what struck me the most about it but uh first of all i think the access like all the footage was just amazing you know all the interviews backstage and like and then all the the people that paid tribute to him in this whole thing too like there was one piece where the camera was on Chris Rock and um, and like two other comedians in the back and Gary Shandling went on stage and they're watching the TV of his performance and they're just like busting up and like he's killing it. He's killing it. And how Gary would just like, you know, he'd kind of get a glimpse and be like, oh, oh, that was pretty good, you know, and then he's taking more notes immediately. He's like, here's what I'm going to do better next time. <laughs> he's just this constant obsession with being better and getting ahead and like how not Zen that is. But uh, that's the struggle. I mean, we don't, you don't just become Zen and then you're like, Oh, everything's great. It's like, you're still a human being melting down every day, like everybody else. And like, what do you do with it? That mindfulness part of it. So that, anyway, it was very telling and, uh, and a nice window into that world of, you know, Buddhism is just kind of one way to, get access to it, whatever sort of branch of Buddhism, but then everyone's got their path to, you know, finding some enlightenment for themselves. And by enlightenment, I mean something that lightens you up in the moment until the next thing you have to deal with. So anyway. Yeah. I mean, I, I think part of what made it, uh, what made this documentary uh, powerful is part of what makes entertainment powerful in general, which is that I basically saw this story of, of Gary Shandling's life as being the story of our lives, uh, ours as, you know, humans, but, but amplified and kind of clarified in a way. So as Michael was mentioning, um, Gary Shandling had a, an older brother, uh, named Barry and, uh, Barry had cystic fibrosis and died when, uh, Gary was, was young and he, uh, really idolized his older brother and, his parents handled the whole thing very poorly. Like they didn't actually even tell him his brother died. They didn't let him go to the funeral, um, you know, and basically never talked about it. It's just like his brother was there one day and then he was gone. And you can imagine how that might fuck somebody up um, on in multiple ways and might cause all kinds of problems in the family dynamic. And uh, the documentary explores some of those things. Maybe we haven't had that level of tragedy in our lives, but at least the three of us have some similar things that we can point at and some similar perhaps failings 
by uh, our, our families that that have affected us. Um, and Shandling himself was in a serious car accident in 1977 as he was starting to get his comedy career underway. He was also somebody who had planned on being like an engineer and was going to school, uh, you know, to go into like a pretty boring business and sort of hit this moment of like, I, I don't want to do this, like capable, but unwilling, um, was in this serious car accident. And basically from that moment on decided he was going to focus on being himself and spent a good chunk of his life chasing this particular kind of professional success, but also really chasing himself, uh, in, in a way. Um, he got very, as, as Michael mentioned, very serious into meditation and Buddhism and was meditating every day and things like that. Um, you know, Michael, you probably know a little bit more about Buddhism than anyone else. You want to talk a little bit about this idea of attachment and, and what it means Sure. Yeah. I mean, in Zen Buddhism is, is, I know just a little bit about it. There's, you know, different sort of branches of Buddhism and uh, they all have different approaches. You know, the one I'm familiar with more is uh, uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And there's like three slash four different, you know, branches of that. Zen Buddhism is a different thing. It was kind of primarily more, as I understand it, you know, uh, Japanese and Chinese and, um, you know, uh, and Tibet is, uh, still not Chinese, even though they, <laughs> you know, completely took it over. Um, but let's leave the politics out of it. So Zen Buddhism is really like a, a more hard, because the people that I know that, uh, that are Zen Buddhist, it's a more austere sort of version of it, you know? And, uh, I could see that, especially coming from uh, Gary's Jewish background, you know, like, you know, more more punishing and more strict and like, you know, like, you know, j just trying to really find his way with that stuff. Um, and with with Zen Buddhism, there's there's all these different sort of, uh, as I understand it, uh, it's an even deeper questioning. You know, it's like a, the, you never arrive. There is no place to get to. I mean, it's it, all the Buddhism is really about that that there's nowhere really to arrive to, but mixed with sort of Western culture and especially entertainment and trying to become uh, the, you know, a talk show trying to replace Johnny Carson is very much about striving and attachment. And then when he got it, you know, he got the opportunity to like be, and then he's doing it. And he, I think that must've been a real mind fuck for him going like, Oh shit. You know, and we have these basic, you know, human needs um, and experiences that we all crave and attachment specifically is when, you know, let's, you know, you get an attachment to an idea. I go speak personally, you know, if I want things to go a particular way, you know, like I'm like, oh, I want to finish this song. I'll just kind of come from a music perspective. I got an idea. I want to, I want to record a song and then uh, put it out there in the world, you know, and publish it. And then, so you push off from shore, you get to work, you're writing the song, and then you're recording the song, and then you're re-recording the song, and you're trying to sort of really build something. And if you bring attachment to it, attachment causes suffering. Um, you know, if someone looks at you funny, if someone listens to it and goes, oh, yeah, you know, you sound like so-and-so, 
but you're attached to it sounding another way, it causes, you know, a kind of a pain and, you know, sort of an existential pain of you're like, oh no, that's not what I wanted. And if you're attached to it, like depending on the depth of attachment, um, the more pain is there. But if you yeah, can go as, like- as, oh, as I see it, like the concept of attachment is basically this idea that you want things yes. to be different than they are. Yeah, right? it's a craving. It's a yeah. grasping. It is you know? It is this, this desire or this want for the world or some aspect of the world to be different than it is. Which if you think about it, it's like I am sad or frustrated or uh, wanting the the sky to be red but the sky is blue and that causes that when, so, you know, people often say, but you know, you can reduce the aspects of Zen Buddhism down to this idea of like uh, you have attachment and attachment causes suffering. Right. And, but what that really means is like, you are not accepting the world and yourself for what, what it truly is. And you are holding on or grasping for something that is not authentic or not real and that that gap, that grasping, that wanting, uh, is is what causes pain. Um, you know, the the one of the things about Zen Buddhism is that it is basically mostly about meditating and kind of intuitively understanding or grasping the reality of your true self and the essence of the world through that kind of meditation. It's not necessarily about reading books or anything. It's just kind of this meditation and focus and getting in touch with the, the reality of things. And I, I found one of the things that I, I love about all of this is that there is such this dichotomy in Shandling between all of these things, right? He is yeah. someone who in his personal life is trying to get very much in touch with who he really is. And as, as you noted, Michael, repeatedly in his journals and throughout this documentary, he comes back to this idea of, I'm just trying to be myself. I'm just trying to get at the real me on stage, <laughs> right? Yeah. He's, he's talking about how he's trying to authentically be himself on stage as a performer. And it is hilarious when you further think that his first big breakthrough was called It's Gary Shandling's Show, and he was playing himself on a television. Oh, yeah. That's right. right? That was, that was his, like, as, as yeah. I heard one person describe it, that, that show was his dirty mind and, uh, the Larry Sanders show was his purple rain. And even on the Larry Sanders show, he is playing. That's, a, that's a good way. That's a, that's a really good analogy. Yeah. He, yeah. he is, he is playing a very thinly disguised version of himself, um, right down. It, I mean, he makes it fairly plain in the, in the choice of the name and things like that. But, but that right there is one thing I thought was interesting is that he is, really interested in this idea of that his comedy is going to come from him just getting up on stage and uh, being himself, being authentic and real. And yet you cannot get on stage and, and be yourself because the very idea of getting up on stage means you are performing in, in some way, right? Like it or not. I, I've, I've often said that, um, you know, putting a mask on is really important for, uh, being free to, to create and to perform. And if that mask happens to look exactly like your actual face, well, that's fine. It's, it's still a mask. Uh, but th this was one of the things that I thought was a really interesting, uh, a really interesting thing to get at. And, and as artists, it, it, or as an artist, it resonated for me because part of what we're trying to do is to express ourselves, but <clears throat> you're not usually talking about 
literally what's going on in your life. You're trying to amplify it or camouflage it or, or change it somehow. I mean, you, do you guys have experience with that kind of a thing? Yeah. So, well, yeah. I mean, being, being somebody with, with uh, fucked up parents that did the fucked up shit that they did with him. Um, I got, I, I got a figure that for, for Gary, um, when he was working that out and working through those things, you, you know, some, something, something when you, when you have parents that you can't really look to as role models, you know, like, I mean, we all start out as kids and, 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 and the hope is in, in, in the best of circumstances that your parents kind of prepare you for the world. Right. And they, they, they end up being, uh, the people that, that you, that you want to do something to, to make proud, you, to make them proud. I, I, I hear it's, I hear this thing from people all the time, athletes a lot. Where they where they say you know I just want to be the best quarterback I, I could be so that I could make my dad proud or make my mom proud. I've never had that. I never I I I was raised kind of like Gary in that I was left to my own devices in in, in terms of trying to de- figure out who I am, defining myself because I couldn't. Uh, I figured out at a very young age that I that uh, I, I I couldn't really look to the people the elders around me to help figure out who I am. So I can't help but think that, that maybe some of that was happening with Gary, that because of this, because of what he went through with his parents, that he, you know, probably in some, somewhat similarly, um, he, he was going to do the regular gig just because that's what the family did. And, you know, that's what was kind of expected of him. And at some point he said, these people don't really define me and they don't seem to they don't seem to be working real hard to to play that role anyway. So I got to figure out who I am on my own. Um, and that turned out to be a, a pretty wonderful thing for the rest of us, right? Um, but that is something I can relate to. is is just this idea of having to define yourself. I wouldn't be doing the things I'm doing now. Uh, I probably wouldn't even be, even be making music. Uh, if had my parents been parents that I could look up to. Well, that, you know, that, I mean, that points to like expectation number one, that our parents are supposed to guide us. You know, there's like an expectation that that's built in culturally with us. It's like, and it depends on what culture you're in too. You know, there's these expectations of like, Oh, my parents should have loved me in a different way. They but it just be parents. So they should just, they, I mean, it, it just comes with raising kids in a way too you know yeah but there's but right there there's a built-in expectation and so you're already setting yourself up for suffering this is like not you specifically but like i know for myself you know if i think it was supposed to be some other way then i'm not present i'm grasping still and i'm suffering because like it's not the way i think it's supposed to be or the way you know my buddy's parents were like why didn't it why didn't I get that? You know, and it's like, uh, you know, the nature I think that that especially Zen Buddhism is pointing to is that if you're in expectation about it's supposed to be some other way, then we're suffering. It's because it's never it's always just going to be how it is. And you're either going to be you're either going to get it and go, oh, that was cool. 
and then it's gone. I mean, it's like clouds going across the sky, covering the sun, and it covers the sun, and we go, oh, no, I can't see the sun now. Or, you know, thousands of years ago, like, oh, my God, we're going to die because they have these, you know, this expectation, and it's about the relationship to what is actually occurring in the moment, which is changing in every single moment. So how do we be in the flow of that? And yet our basic human nature is desire. It is behind everything. It's in everything. And so how do we integrate those two things? And, you know, I'm no Zen Buddhist master, but I do have an understanding for myself of sort of my human nature through that lens of Buddhism, which is, and trying to sort of wake up in a, uh, Western culture of like, you know, got to achieve, got to make money. I got to look like so-and-so. And like the television tells me a particular thing. And my family showed me a particular story. And each of those people is individuals and they're combined or separate, you know, like your history and your story is just what it is. It's just what happened. Like what happened to me is what happened. And what continues to happen to me is more of that. So, you know, I think Zen Buddhism, the idea, at least for me and the experience of it is like, can I have a bigger capacity? Because the more I meditate, the larger my capacity for getting distance between stimulus and response. Like something happens and you go, oh, that's great. Or that's awful. I didn't want that. Or, oh, this is fantastic. We're still, there's a kind of a suffering at the bottom of all that. And it and it's not the kind of suffering that you can quite put your finger on until you really start to investigate it. And I loved how committed he was to the investigation and yet was still going like, you know, how do I look? How do I look? I love when that bus passes by and he's like, did I lose weight? How do I look? Am I funny today? How's my hair? You know, and it's just, he's being funny, but he's not being funny. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. His true nature is this grasping of like, really what he's saying. I mean, in my perception is like, am I okay? Yeah. You know, like, am I all right? Because like, and and there are these, there is kind of a, a, a cycle for human beings. There's a break in being. There's three of them that I've noticed. This is some, from some other classes I took that happen where there'll be a break in being, like his brother dies, right? And no one tells him that he died and he's not allowed to go to the funeral after he does find out. And, you know, he was totally like, his mother was just trying to protect him in the best way she knew how. And it was, and it fucked him up, rightfully so. I mean, I totally get it. But there's a there's this, you know, probably his first break in being. There's one kind of as a child, and then there's usually one in your teens, and then there's usually one in your early 20s-ish. And so, and we make a decision, an unconscious decision. And this, I'm not saying this like it's the truth, but this is my experience. And just from studying this, that, you know, uh, that the world is a dangerous place. That was probably his first, some version of that, you know, it's like, oh shit, something's wrong. You know, everything is not all right. And the world is a dangerous place. And then, you know, our identity, this new identity starts to show up. And I think it's just a human nature thing. It's not like uh, you can control it because shit is just going to happen. Even if you're super wealthy or you're super poor You know, we all have these kind of basic human experiences. And that's what I like about sort of, you know, Buddhism as a practice. It's not like 
I don't like to call it a religion, even though they lump it in that. It's a practice, you know, it's a discipline to have access to freedom from those sort of natural human tendencies, you know, the grasping of like, oh, I need more. If I just had more money or I lived in the right zip code or I just I had the right person who I'm married to. So anyway, that kind of quiet down the um, the urge to respond and to react to all of this stimulus constantly in a way that that causes this this pain from attachment. Yeah, the and and Buddhism, all the Buddhisms really like you try and become the the registrar of your experience. You're like the watcher. You know, because if you really look, there's a voice going on in your head constantly that goes like, Oh, that's good, that's bad. Like, I don't know about that, or like, what is that person wearing? Or like, why did that person say that? You know, there's this thing. But who's the one noticing the voice? And who are you? You know what I mean? Like who and and we are a becoming. We are never just a thing, yet I know my craving is to like get to a place where I'm like, oh, I have some more certainty now and there's nothing certain. I mean, there's historically stuff you can point to, but uh, I think, you know, is it for everybody? I don't know. People get called to it and you check it out. They find their way to like, how can I have a more pleasant human experience? But you know, how do I be with my rage or my anger or my suffering or like, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh is really great. He said, when I would, he said, when I would have rage about the bombs that were dropped on people in Vietnam, because he's Vietnamese, you know, and all the people that were slaughtered, you know, I wrap my arms around it and I, I comfort it. I go, this is my rage and it's going to pass and I'm going to take care of you. And it's really like, I wouldn't call that a Western response. A Western response is like, retaliate, get back, make it stop. Yeah, fuck that. The pain hurts, you know, it's like, but when we, if you can go deeper and deeper and be with the pain and the neurosis, like watching Gary having his neurosis and then watching people react around him and how he pushed people away. It was a great, I mean, Judd did a fantastic job of showing kind of like what that practice is. I don't know if he knew he was doing that with the movie, but that's certainly what I, one of the things I took away. So as, as a, a study and sort of, you know, can I just be present you know, to whatever my experience is, especially the painful shit, you know, how do, how do, can I use this to go to uh, be helpful to others and be helpful to myself? You know, like, how do I be a, I think that's what Gary was striving for was like, how can I be just a better human being in general? That, which is really the tenet of kind of Buddhism in general, but specifically Zen Buddhism. Yeah. I, I wonder how much of it was driven by wanting to be better for external things and how much of it was he just wanted to quiet things in his own mind. Um, that's what I got, you know, one, one I mean, of that, the, that's and, how I relate it. Cause, cause I mean, that's, that's my motivation for doing all the things that, that I've been taught. Well, meditation wise is just to quiet my fucking mind. Yeah. And one of the things I think, you know, it ties this with uh pistol, which we might talk about this week or next week is that, uh, one of the earliest bits of attachment that anyone with a modicum of talent or, or particular kinds of parents get is this push to do something great or something significant. And, uh, you know, it's uh, getting into Zen Buddhism doesn't mean that you just sit back and you don't do anything. 
right? With, no, the, no. That life happens to you, right? But but it is about uh, it's about acceptance and and appreciation, but fundamentally striving to achieve to be as he writes in his diaries, I think at one point, like the best comedian in the world and making the best show that's ever been on television. Uh, this is a kind of striving that causes a very deep <laughs> mental and emotional pain. And uh, I'm, I'm reasonably confident that both Dee and Michael have suffered this as I have, as anyone who has of like, I want to write a really good song. I want to make yeah. the world feel something. I want to communicate. Yes. Uh, and it's not even necessarily about financial success. It's about this kind of artistic sense in this, this burning hunger to, to do something. Uh, that was something that came across multiple times in, in pistol as well, but something that, that seemed like it was in Gary from the very beginning, once he discovered that he liked doing comedy or that he had some uh, aptitude for it, but immediately wanting to be really good at it and trying to figure out over a long period of years, how to do that. One thing I think is interesting is that the, you know, he was was a very good stand-up comic, but he's mostly known for for these shows. And in both his comedy and on the shows, what he's basically doing is taking himself and projecting in some ways his biggest faults up on on the screen and uh making that what the show is basically about, kind of like a look look how messed up I am, look how vain I am, look how attached. Uh, I am. And, and isn't it kind of absurd? Yeah. And you said it earlier and, it, and it's, it, uh, I was just thinking about this when you said it, um, this, this idea of, of, of presenting comedy the way he did and, and this conversational um, approach to stand up is even to this day, not something that a lot of people do. Uh, and and it's interesting. Uh, so I listen. I listen to Mark Maron a lot. Like you know, I think I know Michael does. I don't know if you do, you do too, Anu. But um, yes, Mark yes, Maron talks about. Okay, Mark Maron talks about this quite a bit. You know, like uh, when he talks about when he, especially when he interviews other stand-up comedians, he, he you know like and they 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 uh, start to drill down and talk about like like how they work out the routines and how they approach and and at some, at some point. Oft times he will go, he'll talk about like, like a Gary Shandling or talk about somebody else that, that does something very conversational. And, and, um, and when you hear them talk about, when you hear like the average comedian, even like, you know, top comedians today who have a very, you know, standard standup comedic approach approach. And you hear about what the way they have to work out their routines, it it uh, it really drills home like how crazy Gary Shandling's approach was, and 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 how monumentally difficult it must have been to, to to try to find his way into into working that way, you know? Yeah, it's- because it's hard because 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 you know to hear Mark Maron talk about it, you know, like you have to work the audience a particular way, and everything that you do has revolves around timing and around, around, you know, getting punchlines, right. And, and when you're, you're going, when you're walking onto a stage with, with nothing more than talking about like what you did yesterday and trying to make that funny, like that's, that's, 
a fucking Hail Mary. That's like crazy town. So I think you also have to be really present to be on stage too. I mean, any, any great performer, even when I was performing more, I remember our, you know, I have to sort of like show up and then begin and then let go. I have to just do the thing that I do. You know, it's like playing a song, you know, you're playing music, you're in the song, you know what I mean? You're performing it, but like you're in the flow of it. Something is happening kind of through you and by you at the same time. And, you know, if you're up in your head trying to like play that part right, or you're like, oh shit, here comes the chorus. And I still, I don't know if that chord, you know, if you're way up in your head about it, it is much harder to give it like a, uh, a really freeing performance. There's something that kind of like comes out when you're performing. And that's what I noticed about Gary too. He just seemed very like present. He had, you know, he had been practicing and he knew kind of what he was going to talk about, but you have to, you also have to read the audience and be super present, you know, with like, uh, Oh, that didn't go so well. You know, we're like, you know, without being so attached to it or just going like, Oh, fuck it. This isn't working out. I'm just going to leave the stage. You know, it's like you continue it's brutal, especially comedy. I thought if I was going to do anything other than music, I would do comedy. And I don't, not because I think I'd be good at it. I think it'd be because it is such a fucking challenge. And every comedian I've talked to, they're like, Oh, you don't want to do comedy. You don't, you do not want to do this. And I'm like, you're probably right, but it sounds enticing because it looks so. It's funny. My mind goes there sometimes too. You know, know, I I, I think about that sometimes too. It's not like telling a joke. It's just like, you know, I can, I can like maybe be funny in a conversation, but like when you're on a stage and you have, your job is to like cause reaction like that. I can do it with music better and I can kind of read it. I, you know, early on I, I played with this guy and he had a really great approach to performing. He said, you know, he treats it kind of like war. You get up there and it's like, it's me against them. And I'm going to win. It's my stage and my show. And I'm going to do this. Yet you need them to go with you. You know what I mean? To whatever degree you can get them. So there's that challenge of that. And I thought, what a great way to put it. I never forgot it. So every time I get on stage since then, you know, and, and then playing with him and watching him do how he did his thing. And he always did it with a smile on his face. He played, he was like this punk rock Dwayne Allman guy. And he would just like, smile and lean back and he was like an amazing guitar player i was playing bass at the time and i just took that away and i went that is a great approach to it not you don't want to destroy the the audience but in you know in comedy terms you got to kill you know when you do a great show it's like you're killing them and they're losing it and they're like they're they're coming out of their minds because it's so funny and they can't control their laughter you know i think that's the ultimate where you like cause such a reaction and I think, you know, just to watch him be so present. And as the movie went on, I noticed that in his performances, he was just more and more present. But his human nature, to be the best and better at everything, he made it even more complicated as he went on. And like, and he could, and he could only do it one way, which was like complete and utter control of every fucking detail and every person and how they did it and like, but also questioning it at all at the same time, which is a very Zen Buddhist approach to anything. Is it? Yeah. Well, you're just questioning everything. You're just questioning the nature of everything is what I'm seeing real. You know, can you be in acceptance of like, Oh, I'm on a train and it's moving. And you're like, there's a tree and 
you know, even that you're putting like labels on stuff as you go, or can you just be present to like the experience you're having without words or definitions, but like, that's the conundrum. And I think that's the challenge of Buddhism in general is like, I don't profess to be like free from that stuff when I'm driving in traffic in Los Angeles, I still have my hand on the horn. I'm waiting, my fingers ready to, you know, say hi. <laughs> but I don't go into it with the approach of like, these, all these people are my allies and I just want to be in the flow of traffic. That's kind of like what a performer, a really high level performer might do. They're like, right. I got a little bit of nerve, but I'm just going to get out there and just be like, all right, I'm driving now. And that, that's probably where that's probably, I mean, that's, that's, that's where meditation helped him. Right. Because, because his approach to comedy dictated that he's not always saying stuff that's funny. Mark Maron talks about this too. Like, you know, he has, yeah. a, he had, he has that, he has a similar approach with his, with his standup routine. And, and he knows that when, with his approach, not everything he says is funny. Not everything he says has the intention of being funny. Yeah, so you and you have, he has to manage that too. You have to you have to kind of manage that, and, and meditation probably helps with that. It would just just with this idea of I'm going to stay I'm going to stay centered. I'm going to keep going with this, and I know that I I might lose people for a second, but I'll get them back. Yeah, you know? one of, one of the practices in 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 all the Buddhisms is this thing called bare awareness. And if you just sit still and just just sit in the bare awareness of like what is happening around you. Is the refrigerator buzzing? Like I can hear a fan in the other room. Mastering is really great for this because you I have to listen from kind of a zoomed out approach at first, you know, and just like being aware of music. You could do it with music too, just like listening to music, you know, just having bare awareness about it. Like, oh, we're in the middle of the song now. In about one and a half minutes, this song's going to end. You know, and like, what's your mind doing during this? Can I just be in the the pleasure of the you know, the listening of it or the displeasure of it. You know, if you're listening to music where you're like, I don't really want to listen to this song. Like, Oh, I totally do that when I mix. I mean, I, I kind of, my, I have to get into that mindset when I'm mixing because I just, just, just from listening to the same thing over and over. So yeah. I mean, and, and you know, in, in Buddhism, it's really like, you know, just sitting still with bare awareness, you know, just like scanning down, like how do my feet feel right now? How do my hands feel? Can I feel my heart beating? You know, look at all those thoughts going across my mind. And it's just an exercise. It's a practice. So like when you get out into the world, you know, you can be in the world perhaps with some more capacity or compassion. And ultimately, I think it's about our ultimate state. There's a really great book by, uh, oh man, I think I mentioned it before on a, an episode a long time ago. He's, he's the, uh, uh, he runs all the sort of neurological research for the Dalai Lama, and he has a book called Happiness. And in the book, he talks about what happiness is and what what it isn't, but that it is a basic sort of core of who we are, like a, as a kind of a conceptual state of humanity. And then how do we have you know more capacity to have that experience more of the time? Because, you know, the world is challenging. You know, it's like you try being happy. I got to work two jobs and I got kids and I got a wife who's yelling at me or whatever. And it's just like, can you be with all that and just have it all and not 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 put labels on all that stuff? Just go, oh, that's just what that is. And like, how do you work your way through the world? Or, you know, just washing dishes is one of those things I find really <clears throat> peaceful and easy. Ironing for me. 
ironing yeah. is my happy place. Ironing, washing something, just like, can I just like be with this plate right now and like be present to it? Or am I trying to, am I thinking about what I'm doing next? You know what I mean? So, so I think being on stage and being present is what a great practice. I mean, I recommend it to anyone that wants to like be a better performer, you know, whether it's recording artist or a comedian or whatever, or even painting, you know, and those, like you said, in mixing or recording, you can put yourself in that kind of state mm -hmm. where you're just like, Oh, I'm just playing music right now. I'm just going to play this song and I'm just, I'm just playing it. You know, I'm not trying to be the best in the world at it. I'm just going to play it. And let's just like be in that song. And, uh, that's, that's pretty much, that's what I end up trying to do. Yeah. I, I do a yeah. lot of closing my eyes and just listening to every little part, every little tweak I've made just to see if it's, sitting right well and you you have to sort of listen without intent because the way psychoacoustics yeah. works if you start paying attention to the snare drum you're going to be like oh the snare drum's too loud <laughs> yep. yep right or yes. you start listening to the kick drum and you're like oh wait no no the kick drum's too loud too and then yes. you start listening to the bass and you're like oh well the bass is also too loud <laughs> yeah 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 everything's too loud i listened to this uh tutorial yesterday with um michael brower on uh, his approach to like, you know, parallel compression. And I love the way he's just got such a great energy about him. He's like a big personality. He's a big man. He's tall and, uh, and, and imposing in a way, cause he's just got a lot of energy, but how he talked about what he's doing. He said, I hate talking about the technical stuff of this. I'm going to bring in my second engineer to talk about, how he set it up for me because I go nuts trying to like talk about it. But he said, I'm, t I'm happy to talk about exciting guitars and like, is there glue in the mix is like the drums and the bass. Are they like hop in and like, how is the low end doing and the way he spoke about it? I'm like, that's a great way to talk about music, you know? Cause Oh yeah. It must be nice. That, which, which by the way, Anna, that's Michael and I've decided that's a future topic. Yeah, for sure. Right. But, but it's like talking about gear. It's like, you know, what, what's, a, this... what's a future topic? Future topic is, is a wish list of, of things that we wish we had to just to make our, our music production lives easier. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, sure. like a second engineer, like having yeah. somebody that you can train up on, on doing everything that you would no normally spend months doing and just making them do it. And then being able to be that the per the very person Michael described that can just sit there and just, just move, move faders up and down half a DP and go, okay, it's done. If if you think that would help, and if you think that well, yeah, we'll talk about that in the future. But yeah, I'm also <laughs> familiar with with Michael Brower's Browerization uh, compression strategy that uh, you know is is sort of a a thing that that some people are trying to copy or emulate. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, he yeah. talked about the history of it, which was which was interesting enough. But I, I guess my point is really like he seems very present to like what's there and what's not there in terms of like. Uh, energy and storytelling in sound and i really liked the way because it was very abstract but i related to it because that's how i like to listen to music too especially if i'm engineering things i'm like because you know when you're you're tweaking on something and you're like turning playing with the mid-range or the low end and then all of a sudden it's like ah there it is and then it it reveals itself i think there's something to kind of what gary shandling was doing was he was trying to reveal his truest highest self and yeah, but he was doing it in a way that no one else did. 
you yeah, know? Every, I mean, everyone, that's, the, that's the thing that's, that's really interesting about him. Yeah, he, and everyone's got their own to it. I think they're doing it, you know, whether they know it or not, everyone's kind of doing that anyway. But if you're doing it as a practice and it's a conscious practice where you're like, I'm intentionally trying to be the best person I can be without, <clears throat> you know, trying to plant a flag on the mountain. Because as soon as you plant the flag on the top of, you know, Gary Shandling ha- Mountain, he sees, oh, shit, maybe that's my mountain there. I think that's Gary Shandling Mountain. But it's, you know, it's like you're constantly moving through life in a flow and there is no destination. There's nowhere to get to. Well, I think there's, there's, a, there's a difference be. between trying to be the best and trying to be genuine or trying to be yourself. And I think one of the many tensions is that he saw that, that I, I perceived in this documentary about him is this kind of conflict between these two things, because on the one yes. hand, really being yourself, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a nice person or you're a good person, it just means you're authentic to who you are. And we're not all nice and, and pleasant all the time, right? Uh, yeah. or, or, or maybe who you are is just a, a, a mediocre comic or a mediocre musician or someone who's, you know, just, just okay at these things. And on, on the one hand, a lot of what Buddhism and various other mindfulness practices that we've talked about here are really about accepting and acknowledging who you, who you are you know, not, not like it or not, but just the, the facts of like who you are in this moment or at this, this point in your life. And there is a tension between that of like, I'm accepting who I am now and this desire to not even improve, but just to change. Right. That, that is in some ways that is kind of the, like we talked about a, a little bit ago, like the definition of attachment. There's this, this gap between what is it that that you are, who is it that you are and who is it that you want to be? Um, and, and that, that gap can cause you to look for all sorts of things. You know, we, a couple of things to mention. One of the moments that really struck me in this documentary is like, as you go through it, you can see that, that, uh, Shandling is pretty insightful about some of the struggles and problems and things that he, that he has. He, he might spend a lot of time in his own head, but he knows himself pretty well. And yet, there's this moment where he is in this relationship with this this woman that uh, he seems to like very much, and he's writing in his his diary basically like, uh, "I have this. I finally have this great relationship. Why am I still not happy?" And I was just like, <laughs> "Oh, Gary. Oh, how how do you not see that? How do you not see this? You're so insightful. It's like." I mean, I'm, I'm not particularly enlightened and even I'm sitting there on my couch at, you well, know, I get, I get that too. I, 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 going, I can't believe that he doesn't see that that satisfaction or happiness has to come from in here and not from out there. Yeah, yeah. I get that too, though. Like I, I struggled with what it meant to be happy really all the way up until I found a, a therapist that worked for me. And I started doing some of the things that Michael Hadley taught me as well. <laughs> like, seriously, like I, I, um, I had a real hard time. I had a really, I, I, I had a real hard time for a long time. Um, a recognizing something that should make me happy and be what it meant to be happy. Um, be, and I, 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 again, I think it just, it just had a lot to do with, with, uh, things that happened to me as a kid. Um, so I, I get it. I get it. 
Yeah, it's it is a striving thing, you know. And um, I don't know. It was it was a really beautiful. I know. I don't think he's Judd Apatow set out to show kind of a a case study of you know Zen Buddhism, but Gary Shandling was certainly. It was so fascinating his life and like what a great story to tell, and uh, that Gary was creating all the way along and like we're all doing that all the time every day you know, unconsciously. And so whatever more consciousness I can bring to it, I mean, it's great to notice that for myself and go, okay, to what degree am I unconscious? There's so much, you know, especially like if something happens, like yesterday, I got really upset about something. I was having a conversation with somebody and I got really, really upset. And I'm like, why am I so plugged in? What is happening right now? I'm like on fire inside. And, uh, you know, and so it was just like, okay, this is this is the part, and I, these are some practices I have. Like, this is the part where I try and shut my fucking mouth, and be courteous, and go find a place where I can like sit still until the fire kind of cools down, and then I can look at it more clearly because I know when I get to that point, like most people, it's almost kind of like an autistic response in terms of nerves and blood going to the brain, and your brain just goes fight or flight. I'm, you know, some version of that. And so I did that. And then I went away and like, you know, a couple hours later and like, you know, that tutorial from Michael Brower, I came back to a point where I'm like, oh, okay. And then I started to have some insights because there was more capacity for me to sort of examine what was going on. But that seems to be, you know, for me, what, what works really well is like finding time to examine things without, you know, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for without wallowing and stuff, you know, because like I know I have friends who just like they talk about the same problems over and over and over again. But they're not seeing their part in it, kind of like what Gary, you know, when he gets the girl, you know, it's like the, the dog that chases the car and then gets the car and they got their teeth in the bumper. And they're like, and then it's like, OK, what now? Why was I now chasing what? Right. Yeah. 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 Right. I get that. I get that feeling about happened with his career and his success. Right. Uh, There's a moment in the documentary where um, he finally gets on the Tonight Show. At at this particular point in in culture, that was pretty much the apex of what it meant to be a comedian. If you got on the Tonight Show, it meant that you had made it and you were funny. And here's some external validation and probably. And if Johnny called you over, if Johnny called you over to talk at Phil, then fuck, you're in. I mean, that's it. Yeah, and, and you're going to get a TV show or you're going to have success, et cetera. Everyone's going to recognize yep. you. And one of his comic friends says that he was waiting backstage and Gary comes off after the show ends and collapses into his arms sobbing. And he basically says, I don't know what to do with my life now. Because that's it. Like I, I, yeah, um, I peaked. Right. Like, I've I've finished, and and literally, like I don't know what I'm 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 going to do now. And then right. he he goes, uh, you know, has these couple of TV shows, and as he's working on uh, on the Larry Sanders show, he's striving to make it the best show that's ever been on television. And reviews come out, and it's basically like this is the best show that's ever been on television. And I think much like his uh, exploration with with his girlfriend, there's this sense of like, oh no, I'm still me. Yeah. <laughs> what now? Happy. Now what? What the fuck I do I do it. now? Oh, I totally get that. I get that feeling. And then he had to move on. I mean, that was the thing I noticed is he kept like going, 
okay, well, that wasn't it. So I got to, what's next? You know, I got to better myself. So there's that human striving, suffering thing that we're never, ever satisfied. If you can get it as a, it's easy to get as a concept, like, you know, especially in practice, it's like, well, that thing was, it wasn't the thing. It was like, nice, okay. But then you have this dissatisfaction immediately after that. You know, it's very much like what the human experience is. Well, it's, so what do you do with it? Then what do you do with it? It's just like, you know, it's letting, it's letting something like a goal like that define you. Right. I mean, it gets down to, to what deciding what is going to define you. Right. And for him getting on the tonight show and having Johnny call him over and, 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 and sitting in in Johnny's stead when he was on vacation, shit like that. Um, if that's, if that was his, if that's what he felt defined him and that was his goal, then, then yeah, you find yourself in this place where, okay, that's the thing that defined me and I, I'm there now. Now I don't have anything that can define me. So now what? And, and so, you know, and, and then the same thing happened with, with the show. Yeah. And, and, I, and all this, stuff I totally get this horrible sense of like, this was supposed to make me happy. I got every, I, all my wishes came true. All my wishes and dreams came true and I'm still not happy. So what, what do I do now? Or Um, I asked, I asked for the wrong thing. I had that with extra fancy when we signed our record deal with Atlantic, we had a little record deal, right? And I'm like, Oh, this is super cool. And we're doing our thing. And then, you know, it migrated up to Atlantic records and then, you know, I, I was the one chart because no one else could go pick up the, the contract and have everyone sign it. So I went and got the contract and brought it around to everyone to get it signed in one night. We didn't have like one of those signing things in a party. I was just like, oh, shit, I'm the only one who can do this. And I remember getting the signatures that night. And, you know, and then it's I'm like holding the thing, you know, like there's the trophy and then that night I ended up in the ER because I got, I had a, like a physical reaction that, you know, call it fear of success or whatever it is. And they couldn't figure it out. They just shot me up with like Demerol or something crazy like that. And really? Just, Michael? And oh my so goodness. Went, so the next day I'm like, I never knew any of this. I said, I got it. I yeah, got I've it. I've never heard this either. I can just imagine him sitting there being like, whatever you got, just put it in me. Like make it, make it stop. Oh, it was awful. It was like, I felt like physically, I don't even know how to describe it. And they just, it, you know, it was probably just like a nervous reaction or whatever. But what I realized after Sounds that- Sounds like a panic attack. Like, yeah, it probably was. It's probably something like that. And what I realized after that was like, you know, and then we, we went on, we sort of did, you know, made the shift into like major label mode, but it was like at the very, very bottom rung, right? But I didn't ask for- the millions of dollars. I just said, I want to have a record deal. That's all I asked for. And so we got a little record deal and I'm like, oh, that's cool. But that wasn't, I wanted a major record label deal. And then we got that. And then it was, uh, I was left with like, fuck, I didn't ask for sustainability. I didn't ask for like sanity in the band. I didn't ask for money. I didn't ask for like a 25 or 30 year career Mm -hmm. writing songs successfully with people I really care about. I didn't ask for any of that shit. And I went, Oh fuck. And then I, and my brain is also telling me, well, I gave you what you wanted. Oh, so this it. is where your mind was at when, when you, yeah, when you my mind out. was just like, you know, wow. and, and I, and I didn't realize it till later on. And I'm like, 
well, that's all on you. You better be more specific when you ask for a dream to get fulfilled, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's crazy talk, first of all. I think it's great to be specific about if you're putting it out there to the universe, something that you want really powerfully, you're probably going to get it or some version of it. It helps to be specific, but also like, I don't want to micromanage the universe. You know, I want, but I want some like, but I like this, this or better, please. I kind of put a, like a, a loose garment on it. But uh, I had that experience too. And I've had that a number of times where you, you get the thing or I got the motorcycle and I'm just like, yeah, this is it. And it's great for like a couple of weeks or a month. And then it's like, oh, okay, then, cool. Then, then, then it gets moved to the space and it just kind of sits there. Yeah, or like, oh, the relay went out of it. And I'm like, how much is it to fix it? And I'm like, oh, it's an oh. Italian bike. Oh, it's $400 for an oil change. And it's, and it's like, oh, I didn't know about this. You know, and like, I can see it's real. I saw that in the Gary Shandling thing. It was just sort of like, oh, wait a minute. She wants to have a baby? I don't want to have a baby. You know, like that whole thing with his his ex. and Yeah. Yeah, it was just really powerful. And it's just like, this is the human condition. Yeah, that that whole piece of it was pretty sad too. Like even uh, hearing her talk about their relationship, one of the reasons that they broke up was that she really wanted to have a child and he didn't. And uh, she's you know tearfully talking about him towards the end of it and basically saying, you know, I met somebody else and um, had a child and was able to have that come true. And but she she is quite honest in that, like this relationship with this man who is the father of her child, she's like, he's the father of my child, but he's not my soulmate. My soulmate was Gary. Yeah, it was Gary. And, uh, just the, the, the heartbreak that goes along with that. But I think this is a, this is a, a theme that, that crops up again and again, and it's part of the, I, the, the drive, I think behind the notion of Zen Buddhism of this idea of like, there is something that is not me that is out in the world that is going to change how I'm feeling. And if I yep. get this thing, if I get this trophy or this guitar or this pile of cash or this achievement or this recognition or validation from somebody else, then I will be okay. And I, you see this happen with uh, with Gary Shandling throughout his life of like, if I do this, then I'll be, if I stop trying to be an engineer and go be a comedian, then I'll be happy. Well, if I'm a successful comedian, then I'll be happy. Well, if I have a TV show, then I'll be happy. If I have the best TV show that's ever been made, I'll be happy. And the problem yeah. is, uh, you know, this, this is a theme, I think, one one of the many themes of, of, of this show, but it's this kind of recognition that like that happiness or satisfaction or comfort with yourself is never going to come anywhere except from inside you. And if you aren't feeling yeah. that, it is not because you don't have a piece of gear or haven't written a song or whatever it is. It is because there is some stuff you got to deal with inside. And it's really easy to see at least a couple of those things in, in Gary's life, this tremendous uh, primal grief around his family situation, which all of his friends basically said he never talked about it never talked yeah. about. Uh, and, yeah. and, and that's, it's perhaps understandable in that, you know, I doubt that, you know, any of us talk to our friends, even each other at times about our primal grief, but it does seem sort of strange. And one wonders if it was just sort of like the air he breathed or the water in which he swam, where it's like, it was so much a part of his life or his problem that he didn't even see it. 
because he was, it was just all around him all the time. And, and that not dealing with that or processing it or something, um, was one of the things that kept him in the state that I think he was in for his entire life. And, mm. and it is, is very much this case of like, here's a guy who was worth millions and millions and millions of dollars, could have done whatever he wanted, including nothing, right? He, he could have just as easily like sat in, a, in his beautiful home in, in Beverly Hills or wherever he wanted to be doing nothing. But his, his spirit, his soul, his self would not give him respite no matter what. Yeah. I mean, it's very much like any, any recovering addict can tell you the same story. I mean, it's just that, that God sized hole that no amount of cocaine or booze or breakfast burritos or whatever the fuck you're up to breakfast burritos. You heard me. There's not a hole. There's a breakfast burrito, the size of a mountain inside of you. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's that same thing. It's like they they say uh, it's an inside job, and it's like yeah, easy for you to fucking say. But like when you get a uh, a glimpse, you know, the people that I know that have survived and like are in that world and doing well, but it still comes and goes. You know what I mean? Like you could see it in the Gary Shandling thing, which was just like the next thing wasn't the thing. You know, it was like he gets there, and it's just like you can't just sit back and go, "Oh, this is great." Because there's always a what's next, right? Always. There's always your next. Always. You know. Well, and per- perhaps there's also a part of it where it's like you're trying to prove that it wasn't dumb luck, uh, that yep. it wasn't a one-off. But this is something in in my own life. Um, I have, in in the last couple of decades, really tried to get away from being achievement-driven, which is tough because that was basically 100% of my conditioning as a child. One of the analogies I've used is like when you are an achievement driven person, you are focused on the finish line and winning the race and you are all of the stuff that happens, all the training, the practicing, the race itself is all just something you have to endure or put up with or like, oh, I hate this part. And what I want is the the moment when I break the tape and win the race. And there's a couple problems with that. One is. First of all, you might not win, right? You you don't know. You might just have a bad day. There might be other people who are better, blah, blah, blah. But even if you do win, that winning moment is literally a split second and then it's over. And, yeah. Uh, well, and- you played sports. I know you know this too. I mean, I, I, I think I, I, have that, I had that same issue for, for a very, very long time. I think a lot of it had to do with sports. Like everything is achievement driven you know, in sports, it's, it's not about, it's not, it's not about the, the, the journey to get there. It's, it's, um, it's just doing what you need to do to win the game. Yeah. And, and this is, right? this is one and of that, and problems. that was, that was, that was my mindset for the first 25 years of my life. This is one of the real problems with being achievement driven is that if you think about the volume of time that is involved in preparing for a, a, a metaphorical race, the training yes. uh, and yes. the race itself that is so much more significant and a bigger chunk of things than that little tiny split second moment of the results of the race. And if you can start shifting your perspective, this is, I think, part of what is one of the the things inside Zen Buddhism is instead of focusing on this momentary outcome that you actually don't have very much control over, right? You can control how hard you're running, but you can't control how hard everybody else is running, right? 
um, if you can shift your focus rather to instead of fo- to to embrace the process to embrace the being yes uh, and and that aspect of it instead of just this this did i win or not this this end moment you're going to be much happier you're going to be alive and and living a full life and appreciating all of it instead of just looking at basically a little list of stats and this this briefest of moments where you break through the tape and for that for that just that infinitesimal moment you're like ah oh, i did okay i came in second i came in third i came in first and then immediately and know, then you're right back to 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 working out for the next thing yeah and and hating and, it and if all you don't if you don't want to do yeah, anything exactly and if you're not happy doing that then you're never going to fucking be happy that's um that's something that emerged with me with music and and and, and you know, I think Michael says it all the time. It just, it, things just work out the way they do. I, I wasn't in, I was well into my forties by the time I figured out, well, no, really the thing that makes me happy is the process of creating. It's not, it's not completing an album. It's not completing a song. It's not getting a record deal. It's not getting a show at the whiskey or, or, or whatever. It's just, it's it's the process. The process is the is the thing that that makes me happy. Turns out, yeah. Just and it, and if you don't if you don't have that, then then it's then you end you end up having the kind of life that you're talking about on it. It's very true. Well, you're always on that the hamster wheel. You know what I mean? That's, yeah. That's yes. most, that's most people unaware of. Like you know, oh, you got to get a career and you got to get the job and then you get the girl and then you get the car and the success and then most people get to that point and they if they're achieving well. And then they're just like, I'm fucking tired. Like, what really makes me happy? I think the true happiness comes with like what you just said, Dee, which is like being in the creative flow. Whatever it is for you, for for some people, I know people that are in banking, <clears throat> and they they're in it for the deal. They love the the delicious nature of you know the deal. And then once they get yep. the deal, they're like, okay, what's the next deal? They're looking for the next deal. They're playing the game and they love it. And it's like writing a song. It's like once you get that song done or like, you know, quote unquote done, released, that's when it's done. You're like, well, should I do an acoustic version of that? Or maybe what's next? I want to do another record of this and this. There's always something more, which is if you can be in the the delicious nature of it, <clears throat> then it's there's not a problem. It's just like this is what I do. I wash a dish and then I dry the dish and then I set it down and I'm like, are there more dishes? Cause like, this is what I want to do. And like, and then you yeah. get done with those dishes and you're like, I oh, want, okay, I need to wash some bowls now. Yeah. This is exactly, plate. you know, this, I'm, I'm glad you, you brought it back this Michael, because this is part of, I think what you guys are talking about when you're in these moments, D is not enjoying washing dishes because he wants the dishes to be clean. <laughs> he is enjoying the act of washing the dishes and losing yes. himself in the process of washing yes. the dishes. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And, and it is, it, it, it is one of these simple but important things of like, if you can get to a place in your life where you can appreciate what you are doing right now in this moment, you are going to find, I don't know if I go so far as to say happiness or dissatisfaction, but less unhappiness and, and less dissatisfaction, right? Like less it, happiness and, and uh, unhappiness and dissatisfaction, but also I think I, I know this was true for me once once I, I found that. Um, turns out you end up being more productive as well. 
Like you just, you end up, you end up actually accomplishing shit that you weren't accomplishing before when you were achievement focused. Yeah. There's more you know? flow there's there, more because flow. there's more flow because you're not, you're not concerned with, with, with crossing the finish line. You're concerned with running the race. Right. Yeah. And that's, and you know, it was part of what I was talking about yesterday to somebody. And it was like, it is, it is about the win, but like the win is just the excuse to push off from shore. You know what I mean? Your like record deal could be like the thing that you're shooting for, but it's just to get you, you know, out of your pajamas, pushing off from the shore and you're yes. doing something to move toward that thing. So now you're on a, on a path and not to say that you weren't on a path and you're in your pajamas, but it's like, you know, you want to get into the adventure and, and the spaciousness because I'm, I'm just going to assert that there is a, some aspects uh, and experiences about life that are unavailable if we're just on the surface level, which is like 99.9% of us. I think, you know, the few people that are what they call enlightenment, you know, um, and all that they do, the people that I know that sort of had reached that place, they come back to help the people that don't have it because they go, oh, I see the the illusion of it all. You know, the Buddha talked about that. And like, you know, all the great sort of wise people had talked about that or they're like, oh, everyone's striving and striving, but it's like, it's all an illusion. So if you can just enjoy the illusion and do the striving, then you have freedom. There's a kind of a happiness and a freedom that's available and a spaciousness to life where you're still doing all the same shit that everyone's doing in this bloodbath down here on earth. But you can be like, you can see it for what it is. And I think, you know, those moments are really rare. I have glimpses occasionally where I'm like, ha you know, like, I am so attached to this thing that I'm trying to make a point with, or like, I'm trying to finish it. I got to get the artwork right for my EP, because I know if gotta I get, get that you right. You got to get the artwork right for the EP, Michael. As soon as I get that done, then I can it do it. It all the other buckles thing. if you don't. And then I'm going to be fine. Everything's going to be, and I'm just like, and I have no idea really what's going to happen. I know what I'm going to be doing, I'm pretty sure. But even that's like a likely story at best. I really don't know. I mean, I have a plan. What do they say? You know, like if you want to make God laugh, like tell him you have a plan, you know, but it's yeah. like you need a plan to push My, off the shore. So you there's, can there's a couple that. of variations on that that I use all the time. One is uh, from Von Clausewitz, uh, who wrote in uh, On War that basically no plan survives first contact with the enemy. But I generally prefer Mike Tyson's version, which is like, Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the nose. Yes. It's so true, you know, because life. That, just, that's very true. That's, it yeah, just, that's a great way of putting it, Mike Tyson. Yeah, it just, life, life just presents itself to you and whatever, you know, but the plan gets you off your ass and onto the court, you know, or like pushing off from the shore to do the thing. And what are we here for? You know, I mean, you know, there's all the religions will kind of give you a. Well, I can tell you this little book that I have tells you what your life should be about. And it's just like, you know, there's a hundred of those books out there and a hundred prophets and like, okay, so you get to choose perhaps, you know, and you get to choose all along the way too. But I think the more spaciousness, spaciousness you have, like Gary Shandling had glimpses of it. You could see it, at least in just those, this portrayal of his, his story, he had glimpses of it where he's like, ah, this is great. But then the neurosis would set right back in of like, Oh shit, I re I achieved that thing. Now I'm hosting the tonight show on a part-time basis. And I have the best show on the planet. 
and I can't do both. Now I have to choose. Now I have a new problem. You know, he had really good problems through his life, but he didn't really seem to enjoy his problems. And I think that's kind of the message I took away is like, can you enjoy the problems that you're having with your life? And well, are you willing to make some changes? You know? I think it, it also emphasizes that problems are problems, right? And yeah, uh, one, one important thing to recognize in life is, well, a, a couple of things. There, there's been a bunch of research done that suggests that we have a sort of baseline level of happiness and that uh, it might get perturbed. You know, you uh, come into some money that you weren't expecting and you're slightly happier, but it doesn't last. And eventually you get back down to your baseline level of happiness or, you know, something bad happens. Somebody hits your car or you get a bad haircut or whatever, and you're bummed out for a while. But then eventually you come back to that that uh, baseline level. And uh, I think there is something something to that, to at least recognizing that you have this baseline level of happiness that has to do with how you think and how you are normally. And if you want to change that baseline level of satisfaction, it's more about changing your attitude. But the other thing I think that is related to this is what you're identifying here, which is that I think we have a sort of baseline level of problem (laughs) in our lives. And for many of us, we think, oh, my problem with my life, my music, whatever, if I only had the following thing changed, then everything would resolve. And what most of us find is that underneath that problem is another problem. And underneath that problem is another problem. And doesn't mean, again, you should give up trying, but you should recognize that if you're sitting there saying, for example, oh, what I really need is a new synthesizer. That's the thing that's holding my music back. Well, pretty sure that then you will be like, well, now I don't know about you, but that's what I need. (laughs) But then you'll be like, well, you know, okay, that's good. But now I need a new microphone or, you know, whatever the, the issue oh, is. Yeah. Um, now I need Michael Haley to master it. That's, that's what I need. His rates are surprisingly affordable. Uh, <laughs> but, but I, I think operators it's are standing by. Yeah. It, it's important for all of us to recognize that there's going to be another day tomorrow, but there's also going to be another problem. And, it, you know, you can look at someone like, like Gary is a great example Here's a guy who got his dream job, both of his dream jobs. And then he was like, oh, I can't decide uh, between these two dream jobs. I guess I'm going to pick one. But no matter what I pick, instead, one one view you could take is no matter what I pick, I win because I get my dream job. But I think he ended up in a situation where he's like, no matter what I pick, I'm leaving one of my dream jobs behind and I'm going to be sad and I'm going to wonder if I made the right choice or not. Right. Yeah. Glass half full, glass half empty. It is that thing, you know, and I think that's why I always just pray for good problems. I'm like, just send me some really great problems. And when I talk about it, I really like to, cause it's always like, there's always more challenges that come up and it's like, that's part of being alive. It's like, you know, oh, I still got to feed myself. I still got to like pay some rent somewhere to somebody. And like, for, I have this, you know, compulsion to make music. It's a curse and a blessing all at the same time. And it's really, you know, I get to choose what my approach is every day. And sometimes I forget that I have a choice. You know what I mean? Like I can, I can really get neurotic about something or dwell on something and go, shit, what am I going to do? You know, and trying to remind myself that like, these are really good problems you have. You know, I really have really, I've had really incredible problems in my life. Um, 
And I'm so grateful for them. And they were not easy. You know, some of them just, but it was kind of like, I'm just trying to be in the flow more often than not. Cause like, I'm not really sure totally how this universe works. So, but I do notice a relationship between me and it, you know, there's a conversation going on. And like, if I have an idea, it's like anyone who says, you know, like, Oh, I want to buy a new car. I want to get a white Honda civic or whatever it is. And then they start seeing white Honda civics everywhere. It's like this, this consciousness thing that really Zen Buddhism is, is dwelling in. It's your consciousness. And like, you know, if you can be aware that you are that consciousness, it's coming through and it's, it's continuous. And, you know, you have a little respite every day if you, if you sleep, but even then at night, you've got dreams too that are happening. And like, what is that? Is that just physical? Is that like neurological? But uh, I like to think it's all tied together and I just don't fully understand it. And I never will. And I'll probably die incomplete as a, as a great problem because I'm, I'm ambitious enough where like, there's so much I want to be going like, Oh, well, I'm probably not going to get it all done, but I had a good time trying, you know, what a great way to go. And that's you know, a choice. Well, well, I hope that we all have problems because that at least gives you a signpost or a direction or something to, to wrestle yeah. with. Sometimes that can just be a distraction from dealing with the real problems. You know, the example I use all the time that I think is perhaps an apt metaphor. So I'm talking about, you know, sometimes we sit here and we say, oh, well, you know, what, what I really need is a new keyboard or a new microphone. And I'm like, well, the problem with my music is not really so much the microphone. It's about two, three inches in front of the microphone, right? That's sure. That's yes. the real piece of gear that I need to learn how to work or improve or upgrade. <clears throat> Yeah, um, yeah. The, the thing that will make the biggest difference in the quality of my music is generally not the gear. It is the me, right? And, and it's the, the writing, the performing, the being mindful, and even just getting to a place of instead of this striving or this attachment, getting to a place sort of like Mr. Shambling was talking about of trying to be myself and trying to be uh, authentic or being comfortable with what I do. Um, and, and, and how I'm expressing myself. Yeah. And I think that that may have been, I mean, my experience of meditation, because I, you know, you can be listening to this thing and going, it sounds so fucking tedious. Why meditate at all? And it's like, I do it for relief. And, uh, I'm yes. sure Gary was, Gary was seeking some kind of relief and it's cumulative. It's over time. It doesn't just like you meditate once and you get it right. And then it's like, ah, check that box. I'm done. It's like, you know, you don't, you don't just take a shower once a week. You know, the shower that you had yesterday may not cover today. You know, you got to like take another shower, meditate again, you know, whatever it is, you don't just eat like you, one you can't, day. you can't, can't brush your teeth once a year, Michael, you got, you got to brush your teeth. Every well, it, right. it also goes back to our discussion of, of, um, you know, the practice or the, the enjoying the process rather than focusing on the outcome. You don't meditate because it's going to make you feel a particular way, right? You, you meditate because you're trying to enjoy the, the moment and focus on the moment. And if there is a beneficial outcome, that's, that's fine. So, uh, again, I encourage our, our listeners to check this documentary out. There is one of the things that Shandling, you see some of his notes from his journals about this, and he talks about the incredible strength required to calm and still the mind. And he comes back to that repeatedly of how 
uh, it, it, it was difficult for him. He felt it was an achievement and, you know, was eventually getting to a place where he's like, I, I can do this. I can, it, trying to do it every day and getting himself to a place where he can just calm his mind down, uh, have some peace. Yeah. And, you know, for the speaking of achievement, I mean, there is benefits to it, but it's also sometimes it's really challenging. I mean, it's not like every meditation is really fantastic. I, you know, I've had a, a couple in the last two weeks where I was just like, well, that was a little different. You know what I mean? Like I was really uncomfortable during it. It was very loud in my head during that meditation. And I'm like, okay, well, that voice had to come out at some point. And but you're you know, doing it. The, the, the point is you're doing it. Yeah, practicing I, it. I, I do it as a practice, you know, and I just try not to like, if I do this, then I'm going to get this. I mean, ultimately in the big picture, there are benefits to doing it. I mean, there's scientific proof that there's benefits to it. So you can, there's a whole bunch of research about that. That's like pretty incredible. And uh, to make my life on the planet a little easier. And hopefully I can impart some of that with people. And cause you know, you're whatever you, when you walk into a room, you bring all of you with you, including like the shit that works and the shit that doesn't work. And people can feel that stuff too. So like I'm, I'm wanting more of a peaceful experience. I don't know if living in Los Angeles is maybe the wisest choice for that, but it certainly needs a lot of help here. So I'm happy to do what I can. Not like I'm going to change Los Angeles, but you know what people I do come in contact with, I like to bring some help if I can. And I, I certainly, there's, <laughs> I have my failings for sure. Trying to not honk as much is one of those practices, you know, and like would, uh, would I find that, you know, some of my behaviors attractive or repulsive? You know what I mean? If there's the angry man in the room, you're just like, oof, I'm going to head in the other room. You know, like, what do you do to deal with that? But I think, you know, Gary, you know, trying to find his authentic self in this amazing documentary was just really, it was humbling and also really touching. And like, you know, kudos to Judd Apatow for like producing such a beautiful uh you know, tribute to this man who was super complicated, you know, much, and I, you know, much like a lot of us, I think we're probably more complicated than we like to think. I certainly am. I certainly am. So anyway. And maybe yeah, the lesson George. learned is, is living in the moment, you know, trying, trying to, trying to get into that, I guess, Buddhist practice, Michael, right. Of living in the moment and yeah, there's nothing else. Really, just I mean, doing everything you can to be fulfilled with living in the moment instead of um, chasing yeah, the right. golden ring. Yeah, I think the illusion is that you're going to get somewhere, and some, and there's a lot of evidence that, like, you know, people are like, "Oh, well, they're doing it. Look at what they got," and it's like you have no idea what their experience is on the inside. No idea. You don't know what goes on in their bank accounts, their bedrooms, even though they may show you a picture. I mean, this is like social media 101. You know, and the people that like see this shit and go, fuck, my life sucks. How is it that they're doing all that? It's just like if you buy into that narrative and most people do, I do. I certainly look and go, how the fuck did that guy get that gig? Why is he doing so well? And I'm, and then I have to really think and like redirect my thinking and go, good for him. He's figured out something. Maybe I should call him and go, hey, what's going on over there? You're doing so well. It's amazing. How did you do it? How did you do that? Yeah. And you know, it depends on what you do with it, but I have more capacity for that now. Certainly a work in progress, you know? So anyway, I, I think that movie was really, 
was extraordinary. I'm glad I, I got the opportunity to watch that. And thank you for suggesting that on you. And I'm, I'm glad you watched it too, D. It's pretty great. Well, ultimately, yeah, it's good stuff, man. aside from being well-made, uh, it is a movie about a creative person who is struggling. You know, it, it's basically comedy mindfulness and madness, if you will. Is, yes. Uh, yes. You know, why I saw the parallels. And of, of course, uh, definitely encourage people to go back and revisit the Larry Sanders show as well. Uh, it's so good. And, Such a uh, great show. Yeah. Such a great show. One of my son's favorite shows. He, my, my son's a huge Gary Shandling fan. Always has been. Okay. Yeah. We're at, well, we're at time, Michael. We're at that time. See how quick it goes. It's time for oblique strat. I was interesting. I, uh, I uh, was watching, uh, we, uh, we went and went to see the moonish daydream doc Thursday night. And, uh, there, they, there was a bit in there at one point, I think when they were, when he was in the Berlin period stuff where they were, they, they, they cut to Brian Eno with, with a stack of, uh, oblique strategies cards yes. and they were, the, and, and Brett Morgan was cutting between animation and like he was, uh, he actually like cut to the, these, this, these animations where he was, uh, throwing up messages from the, from the cards on the screen. And I turned to Hazel like, Oh, oblique strategies. That's funny. Yeah, it was great. Anyway, that's all your fault. We're doing this. Uh, I love them. Okay. You guys ready? Yes. Okay. Oh, wait, I'm not. I just noticed. I try not to look at mine, but I just noticed that I pulled one that one of you guys like just pulled last week. Is the drummer ready? The drummer's ready. Okay. You guys ready? Yep. Okay. Boom. Uh, Anu's got work at a different speed. Michael's got repetition is a form of change. Oh yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a nice reminder. That's one of those ones that I, that's one of those ones that I like where it's like, oh yeah, well it is kind of, isn't it? I shouldn't get it too up in my head about making a change. Mine is abandon normal instruments, which is fun. Yes. I did. I did a lot with the mimeograph stuff and that was thoroughly enjoyable. Abandoning normal instruments and and using weird ones that I don't normally use. You guys are the best. All right. Well, uh, you can uh, like and subscribe us on on the, uh, the 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 Apple Podcasts and and Spotify's and everywhere else that you guys listen to uh, podcasts. Um, you can find us on on the Instagrams. You can find us on the Facebooks. You can find us on the internets at Music Mindfulness and Madness. Where and what else can you do at Music Mindfulness and Madness, Anu? You can sign up for Instacart and get your groceries delivered in 30 minutes or less. You can get chips, meat, vegetables, and a variety of other things all from Instacart. So I believe uh, we have a URL up there. Go check it out. It's all good. I love it. So use that, support the show, and uh, we'll see you next week. Buy stuff. Buy stuff. We'll see you next week here at Music, Mindfulness, and Madness.
feel like uh, I feel like I'm I'm listening to the real Don Steele. I mean, it, you gotta admit that's it's a it's a great intro, you know? Like, I, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Sure. I think that I I think that's I'm voting for that. I'm not even gonna try anymore. I, I can't. No, no, we should we, we we should do something. No, Otherwise, we're gonna we end up something. paying royalties to the quick. Oh, stop! <laughs> that's true. Yeah, who wants to do that? All right. All right, amigos. Well, we'll catch you all next week. All right. See you next week.